Welcome to the Thinking Fellows podcast. I'm producer Caleb, and I'm here with Dr. Keith and Dr. Adam Francisco. Today we're doing another episode of an interview with Dr. Francisco. He's one of our regular hosts, but we thought we'd do a guest-style interview with him over a couple subjects that he's an expert in. Last episode... You're an expert in things? No, I just make it all up, Okay, like every good historian. That's why he couldn't stop talking, right? <laughs> I just wanted to be sure. <laughs> I dabble in these things. So last episode, we covered what's really your field of expertise now, or what most people publicly know your field of expertise being in, and that's Other than Islam. The- wow. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get through this introduction? Yes, and go then, ahead. And then today we're going to talk about Luther and apologetics. Now, we've, we're coming out of our apologetics series. You could consider these last two episodes part of the apologetics series, but they're kind of transition episodes, and especially this episode is, as we're moving into a series on great heroes of the Christian faith. And today, we're talking about a subject that most people don't think about often, or I, I guess don't talk about often. I've never heard anybody talk about Luther on apologetics in my time in undergrad or apologetic courses that I've taken or even church history courses that I've taken. It's usually Luther, you know, and the Reformation. And so how does apologetics fit in to the Lutheran Reformation and into the theology of Luther, I think is an important question that people just don't know about. So Dr. Keith has prepared some stuff here to ask questions to Dr. Francisco. Now, is it true your master's thesis was in this topic? Is that what I hear? Yeah, boy, man, that was uh, 16, 15 years ago. I wrote a MA thesis uh, under Dr. Rosenblatt entitled something like Luther, Lutherans, and Apologetics. And what it, it started with kind of a, it looked at uh, apologetics and Lutheran theology and whether whether the two work, could work together. Uh, the conclusion was that they could. Um, and the second half was some examples of, of apologetic activity in the life and thought of Luther, in particular his writings on, the, on Jewish theology and, and Islam. Yeah, I would think a lot of people would turn to Luther defending his positions against the Catholic Church, but that's not what we're particularly talking about here. We're talking right. about actually Christian apologetics to non-believers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which wasn't a huge question in the 16th century. There's I mean, in in Europe, Western and Central Europe. I mean, the the population is generally speaking Christian. You've got some Jewish pockets, or pockets of Jewish uh, people. Uh, Eastern Europe, you've got Muslim Turks. Um, but most people are Christians, so the, the conversation of the day is uh, mostly what's, what's biblical, what's the, what are the biblical doctrines? You know, what are the doctrines of the church? And so it's an inter-Christian conversation for the most part. Uh, so you can't expect too much out of Luther uh, in terms of apologetics, but he certainly did engage in what we would call today apologetic activity. So is it redundant to ask you then, Adam, why is this a question? I mean, I, I, can, I yeah. can provide some of that after you're done, but I think it is a question. Um, it is a question um, for, for, I guess, a couple reasons. One, in, in Lutheran circles, um, because it's a historic tradition, uh, there's a lot of deference uh, given to Luther, Right. So I find, I don't know if this is 
why this is the case, but uh, people in, in Lutheran circles, and we'll talk about broader circles in a minute, but in Lutheran circles, people, uh, you know, theologians, pastors, and so on, they, it's, if Luther didn't permit something, it's almost like you can't do it. And I, that's maybe hyperbole, but uh, uh, people look to Luther for permission, and Luther is a big authority for us. And I mean, this, this is hyperbole, it's but... It's the name Lutheran. <laughs> but if you look at uh, Lutheran debates, uh, of well, hopefully most of the references are going to, if it's over theology, it's going to be to scripture and secondarily to the Lutheran confessions. But there's oftentimes, you know, if you can, and again, this is hyperbole, but if you quote Luther on something, it's like you've won. If you got Luther's support. The curious thing with Luther is that he's all over the place. He wrote a ton and he's not exactly the, it's not that he's not, he's, um, chaotic in his thinking, but he's not, uh, as I'm kind of tired of saying, but he's not a systematic theologian. He's not like a Calvin where he's not going to repeat himself. Uh, and, and he's at his well, well, he's going to start at one point and move to another. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, he, doesn't he addresses, do Luther is, I heard it once said he was an occasional theologian, meaning he was a theologian who spoke to these particular occasions. Yeah. He's not a theoretician, if you will, right. the way that kind of Calvin was. Um, Kind of Calvin. That's an interesting well, phrase. And the other thing I come in contact with a lot is when people quote him, they quote him almost out of order. The date context is mixed sure, up, right? Sure. You get really early quotes against really late quotes for Luther, and people don't understand the movement in his theology from 95 theses to his death. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, kind of getting back, I mean, there, Luther's a big authority for Lutherans. And so if Luther is for something, Lutherans believe that Lutheranism is for something. Yeah. yeah. If, um, I mean, generally, I mean, it, you, there are things Luther says that we, you know, think his stuff, some of his real extreme comments on Jewish people, you know, we don't follow that. Or, I hope or we, we don't, don't talk about it much. Yeah. <laughs> Conceal <laughs> it. Um, um, Although there's been two two fairly good, uh, I know, I, well, three actually, um, pretty good books that I'm aware of that deal with that a little bit. Sure. One by Lowell Green, yeah, Montgomery, yeah. and I think Uva, too. Yeah, Uva. Fabricated yeah. Luther, yeah. I mean, some people but, have taken it as an extreme to say Lutheranism promotes Nazism. Sure, right? sure. So. Which is dumb. But uh, so you get Lutherans who, for Luther's a big authority, and so uh, the question of whether Luther would engaged in or would have would have been in favor of apologetics is a concern for for Lutherans uh, for broader the broader our broader listenership I think that's the right terminology um, Luther plays such a pivotal role obviously in the Reformation of the church and his theology whether you're a Lutheran or not is still uh, comes to bear in the way Protestant evangelical Christians think today so his his approach to apologetics is being a biblical theologian, a theologian who is at the center, very concerned with ensuring that his theology corresponds to the biblical text, it's worth uh, paying attention to Luther. Uh, and just as maybe our histor out of historical curiosity, um, there is this great long apologetic tradition in the church, uh, and Luther is certainly very much a part of that. Um, one of the things I've run into, and I, you've alluded to it, I'll go more, more directly to it, I think, is that I've had conversations with other um, faculty members on campus um, <clears throat> in theology where they sort of question the need for apologetics as we approach it, mm -hmm. I'd say evidentially, inductively, um, and will often 
say, hey, I'm not, I don't think Luther ever felt it necessary to do anything like this, um, or I'm not aware that he has done anything like right. this, yeah. or, um, and they sort of looked more towards the internal consistency slash verifiability of the scriptures um, yeah. inside themselves, really, as uh, proof, maybe, that apologetics, at least from the evidential perspective, is not consistent with our, with our theology um, and would lean towards more what uh, we've turned, you know, we've used sort of Vantillianism here as an example and that type of thing where really the only uh, apologetic task that we can see in the scriptures or in our, the, as consistent with our theology is sort of going after the other person's position. Yeah. A couple things on that. The, um, one, if, Caleb, you'll have to put this in the show notes. I will um, do it then. Dr. Montgomery wrote a a piece that's appeared in a several places. And if you just type in Google the apologetic thrust of Lutheran theology, you'll get it in some source. That argues in the way that Montgomery can argue very tightly that Lutheran theology, is ab- with its emphasis on the incarnate Christ, um, is absolutely uh, open to an evidential historical uh, apologetic. Um, second thing, you Scott, you mentioned the um, how there are some of the theologians you've spoken with have said uh, that Luther didn't really engage in apolog- didn't engage in apologetics, and if he did, it would have been this sort of like presuppositional, mm-hmm. um, you know, if the Bible you know, or internal consistency consistency type of argument. You know, so long as the doctrine is internally consistent, it's true. That type of argument. Um, and you can actually find this in some of the scholarship. There is a book uh, written by, a, I believe he was a Wisconsin synod, which might not mean a whole lot to some of our listeners, but a particular brand of Lutheranism, uh, a man named Siegbert Becker wrote a book called The Foolishness of God. And there's a chapter in there titled, entitled Luther's Apologetics. And at the very end of the chapter, uh, Becker says, in, in summation, uh, the what we could say concerning Luther's approach to apologetics, and Becker believed he did engage in some, um, we could say that the best way to describe it is the way he described it in a marginal comment on his, or from his textbook on uh, Lombard sentences. Gotcha. You know, this old medieval systematic theology textbook kind of, uh, where Luther wrote in the margin uh, something to the effect that what the Holy Spirit says in the Bible is true and that always settles it or something like that. Now that's from, that's very early, that's pre-reformer Luther writing that comment, right? So that's problematic from, you know, Caleb, you mentioned yep. something about with Luther's chronology. But what's curious with Becker and others who have Wayne House, H. Wayne House has written an article on Luther's apologetics and there are others, is all these characters who write on Luther's approach to apologetics, they are looking at some of his, his statements from, from works that aren't apologetic in character, you know, and they don't look at his writings to the real non-believers of his own day, his writing on the Jews or his writings on the Muslim Turks. Uh, people didn't really know a whole lot about his writings on the Muslim Turks up until maybe two decades ago. So, the problem in a lot of the scholarship and some of the, the opinion amongst, uh, if I, I don't want to be too aggressive here, but some of the theologians, <coughs> they're not reading appropriate material. Um, 
to get uh, Luther's view of apologetics. So here's the thing. With Luther, if you want to know what he view, how he viewed apologetics, you probably ought to look at his apologetic work, not some other material, you know, some works like, uh, I oftentimes have hear people quoting Luther's Bondage of the Will, which is a great work. We interviewed Jim Nestigan on the Bondage of the Will, I think months ago now, eight right. months ago or something. Yeah, August. Uh, if you go to the Bondage of the Will, the beginning of the Bondage of the Will, Neskin told us we should read it from the back, but if you go to the beginning part where he's going after Erasmus and Erasmus's um, kind of aloofness or uh, shyness in being overly assertive, and Luther says, Christianity, Erasmus, is about asserting doctrine, asserting truth. Uh, Christians delight in assertions, Luther writes. And then he explains, what does it mean? What does this mean, we delight in assertions? And he says, it means we constantly confess. Uh, and then he says, and also, and everybody forgets to quote defend. this. Defend. Yeah. Right. Our, what we believe is the truth. The truth. Yeah. Capital yeah. T. Yeah. Capital T. Absolutely. The truth. So, even in those works that aren't apologetic in nature, um, Luther is very much interested in defending the truth. Now, for Luther, being a guy who's an occasional theologian, depending on the occasion, is going to determine how he approaches the apologetic task. Right, and I, I'm struck with what you attributed to Montgomery, and um, I've heard you say it many times too, so sort of in my life it's attributed to you and to Rod. And, um, this idea that with Christianity's focus on the necessity of the incarnation life, death, and resurrection of a Christ who was an actual person that existed in real time, real space, and real history. Mm -hmm. With Lutheranism's absolute need, I think I'll even say, for that truth to be true, mm -hmm. and how the rest of our theology rests on that, it perplexes me when I get in these conversations. Um, because I wonder, I wonder how that works. You know, it's just... I'm, systematically how that works if 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 you, one believes that that could at could not be true historically yeah. and still be true theologically how those two things come together and i i struggle with that because i yeah. they can't for me because at the end of the day if i say that that christ's life death and resurrection for me are true as i know it from the scriptures i'm not i'm not just saying that they're true because the scriptures are true. I'm saying they're that those things are true. Mm -hmm. Thus, the scriptures are true, yeah, yeah. and they're true historically. Thus, they're true theologically, and thus they're true for me. Yeah, I, I get. I'm perplexed by it too. If you really believe in a real incarnation, it has to be not true some sort of idea of an incarnation, but it has an to be actual true. incarnation that the Word of God took on human flesh and tabernacle or dwelt among us. Uh, it's, it is, by definition, maybe, open to investigation. Right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's easy or everybody's going to see it or anything like that, but it, it is open to investigation if there was a real incarnation. And if it's true, that has to mean historically, too. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know that you can explain it theologically. I think a lot of this is sociological. You can look at it sociologically. There's this... Um, if you move towards a more inductive approach to truth or knowledge. There's a lot of, it's probability, you're never going to get certainty. It's always going to be probability. Right. Maybe high, 99% degree of probability, or 
probability, but it's it's not certainty. And and uh, theologians, especially in our times, where where it seems like we're surrounded by critics of all sorts, it's almost like they're circling the wagons because they're scared. I don't, I'm not saying they're individually or personally scared, but uh, as a system, if, if you open up. To, if you open up to an inductive approach, it's possible you might not reach the right conclusions. Right. And I guess I want to clarify, too, just so I don't get um, you know, bombasted here, is I absolutely believe that the scriptures are, are true, right? I'm an inerrantist, as they say. I believe they're, they're inerrant. But having said that, mm-hmm. that means that the information that they contain, which, which purport to represent historical events have to be true too. And thus, they happen in real time, in real history, and are subject to mm-hmm. verification. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I believe that that verification process will end up in the scriptures right. Show, right. being shown to be untrue. Yeah. I, the other way around, I think that verification process is what shows me mm-hmm. in, in yeah. a particular yeah. way yeah. that they are, that the scriptures are true, that they are infallible, that they are inerrant. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm convinced though that those who are opposed to kind of an inductive evidentialist approach to things are uh, sociologically speaking when 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 all of a sudden you're acknowledging implicitly at least that there isn't certainty in these things that's a problem for for especially people who revel in in dogma right you know, not, and dogma not at least the mathematical certainty right right, right. and or as we would said yeah. earlier in the shows analytic certainty yeah. There, there is, I do get, sometimes you'll hear the argument, well, uh, facts aren't just sort of bare things that interpret themselves. You know, uh, there is an insight from presuppositionalism, to use the technical terminology, that, uh, that I think is legit, that says when you look at facts, historical or, or otherwise, people always bring their sort of framework, their worldviews, to them. To them and interpret those facts in light of that right. worldview. Postmodernism so, says the same thing. Yeah. So I get that, you know, when people, if, if they're rejecting an inductive approach because it just, it's not going to bear any fruit because people don't view or approach things neutrally or they're not able to put aside their biases or, or what have you. I, I get that. Um, but that's not an excuse to scuttle the whole thing. Right. Um, or more, moreover, it might be. Um, a motivation for you to attempt to set your biases aside uh-huh. before you approach the question. Yeah, and to persuade them that they're they're to expose their biases, right. their prejudices, um, and argue or persuade them, like Paul did before Agrippa. Right. Yeah. Uh, that the way they view things is actually doesn't correspond well with the act- the facts on the ground. Right. Um. I, maybe getting back to Luther, but I I get it's hard not to get. Uh, um, I'm probably I'm sure you experience the same thing. Not to get agitated when these when some of these. Well, I'm easily I'm easily agitated anyway. Yeah, I know you're cantankerous, yeah, yeah. but uh, um, when when theologians, Lutheran theologians in particular, cite Luther and say, "Well, he he was opposed to apologetics or never did apologetics, so we don't need to do him," or even worse, when some bonehead can I be that strong sure. says well luther says that reasons the devil's whore apologetics uses reason to defend or promote the truth of christianity therefore apologetics is inappropriate or it's whorish maybe yeah um 
stupid. Um, you, you can go, you can find support of not any position, but lots of positions in Luther, even contradictory positions. If you just lift one proof text from Luther sure. out. So when you look at Luther, I think of his great Galatians commentary in the first volume of that, he says something to the fact that when you deal with Turks, Jews, and other sectarians and uh, Epicureans, he, and when he uses the term Epicurean, he, he's kind of meaning the agnostics of his day. Some that are popping up, especially in Italy in the Renaissance movement. Um, when you're dealing with these people, he says, they don't care about the, the church, the doctrines of the church, and so on and so forth. You've got to deal with them or defend the faith before them uh, on other grounds. You're in an, another area there, and you've got to use all your wisdom, your reason, uh, and clever, cleverness uh, that you got in defending the faith before these, these types of people. And Luther had quite a bit of cleverness in him. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Okay, so that's a good jumping off point for us to take our first uh, break in advertisement. So we'll see you uh, after the break. Welcome back from our break. Today we're going to talk about the first major conference of 2017 that 1517 is uh, putting on, and that's Giving Kids Grace. Dr. Keith is one of the main stage speakers at that conference, featuring his book, Being Dad. And I think he's going to talk about why you should go, why you should buy a plane ticket out there if you're a little far away, and if you're in the area, why you should drive. All right. Uh, Being Mom and Dad, Giving Kids Grace is a conference that will be held in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, featuring Elise Fitzpatrick, Jessica Thompson, and myself. And we're basically talking about um, the idea of Christian parenting, but not from the perspective that you've probably heard before. This is not a law-oriented conference. This is the idea that your children have more law in their lives than you probably realize. And what does it look like when you focus your parenting on giving kids grace and being an example of grace in their lives? Um, Elise Fitzpatrick and Jessica Thompson will do What Makes Christian Parenting Christian. Uh, Elise and Jessica will also do Practical Grace for Parents and Kids. They're very good on both the theoretical and the practical side. And then I'll be doing something that I've been wanting to do for a larger crowd for a while, and that's the idea of the lost art of masculinity, what it looks, looks like when children actually have masculine fathers in their lives who define masculinity as being strong but gracious. So you should check it out. Again, the conference is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The dates for the conference um, are, well, let me give you the location first of all. The location is St. Matthew's Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids. The address is right on the home page of givingkidsgrace.com. The date is February 11th, 2017. It's a one-day conference. The schedule is not a difficult one. Um, I love it when conference schedules allow time for conversation and just some talking among the attendees and ours does that. It runs from 9 a.m. to just after 2 p.m. 2 p.m. there'll be a Q, Q&A session and a book signing. Uh, for registering, conference attendees get a free book, at least one free book, I think, maybe even two. Um, either Being Dad or Give Them Grace or both. Um, but check it out. The website again is givingkidsgrace.com, February 11th, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Elise Fitzpatrick, Jessica Thompson, Scott Keith, all doing their best to present Uh, an idea of Christian parenting that is framed from a perspective of the gospel and from graciousness and completely unique, worth your time. Elise Fitzpatrick is a very well-known, and Jessica too, very well-known speakers and very highly sought-after speakers, and they've 
offered to partner with us on this, and we're, we're very excited that they did. So again, givingkidsgrace.com, February 11th, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Check it out. It's going to be a fantastic show. Great way for us to kick off 2017 and our speaking engagements. Are you coming, or is mom going? Uh, I will be in school, so it's not uh, travelable yet. I can only take off so many or skip so many classes a semester before my professors uh, start to begin to be unhappy with me. That's because you don't have Adam for any classes a semester. That's right. He'd just be like, don't show up. (laughs) (laughs) Not true. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, check it out. Uh, Givingkidsgrace.com, February 11th, Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right, sounds good. So uh, let's talk about Luther just a little bit more. Yeah, I wanted to maybe get us a little more refocused here. Um, (laughs) You think? (laughs) Something happens when Rod's gone. We kind of bling, bling, bling. That's because his place. stare yeah. is not looking down upon us. So here we go. He's, he's after all, the radio professional. We're mere amateurs. <clears throat> so here we go. Uh, Adam, I wanted to just uh, throw two things out to you that you can ath- answer in succession, or if you get off track, I'll remind you. Um, how would Luther define apologetics? And based on that, is is there one sort of method that he used that could be sort of uh, delineated, or was he sort of all over the place, opportunistic in that as well. Yeah. Um, he doesn't define apologetics the way a contemporary apologist would define it. Or he doesn't, def- he doesn't really think he, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth or ideas in his head. Well, you're a historian, uh, isn't that what you guys do? <laughs> kind of. But uh, um, he didn't have to define it closely because it was understood and has been understood, I would argue, for almost 2,000 years that uh, when somebody has a question concerning the Christian faith or rejects the Christian faith or attacks the Christian faith, you ought to respond. So I think Luther, I think it's fair to say that Luther took it as a given that when Peter wrote, um, always be prepared to make a defense, an apologia for the hope within you, I think he meant, or he believed that that really stood. That that wasn't just a suggestion or a recommendation, but uh, Christians should be prepared to defend the gospel. Actual exhortation, go do this thing. Much like the Great Commission. So he does this with early on, you know, with Rome. Um, And then as he is more, is pulled into, increasingly pulled into more public affairs, uh, already in the 1520s, uh, there's um, issues with Jewish populations that come up. Uh, he's heard of um, Jewish theologians or Jewish writers attacking Christianity. There's a great, um, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's a, a Jewish scholar out of Israel who wrote a nice paper a couple of years ago that he gave at the 16th Century Studies Conference where he interestingly argues that the vitriol of Luther and others when they write on the Jews in the 16th century, which they get a a bad rap for. This Jewish scholar says it was actually, first of all, very common. And second of all, in that context, justified. Because the Jewish authors who were poking fun at, you know, calling Mary a whore and so on and so forth, they they were using just as harsh and rigorous of polemics against Christianity. So So when we sort of, from our our cultural perspective, say, boy, Christians have been mean throughout the centuries. Look at Luther and all the things he says. This guy's arguing that, listen, this was the time. Yeah, this is is not just Luther. It's not just Christians. It's just... We're just kind of... We're soft. It's kind of pansies now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so already early, right after he, is, you know, he's excommunicated from Rome in, in 1521, I believe it is, or 1522. I should probably know this since I'm a Luther scholar, but I don't have <laughs> the time. And, um, he's excommunicated from Rome in 1521. Um, he's, he becomes a public, he's becoming and is now a public personality. He's pulled into all sorts of controversies. Um, the first one he has to deal with that, that deals with decided non-Christians are the Jewish people. And if you push aside all the distracting, nasty rhetoric. Polemical language. Yeah, which actually doesn't appear as, as, it's not as harsh early on. It gets very harsh in the 1530s and 40s. But early on, he writes works like that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, which is a, I think, 1523 or so, um, a nice little apologetic to Jews uh, explaining that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. I've heard it, um, and I want—I don't recall if I read this in Lowell Green's book on sort of defending Luther and his polemics against Jewish people or Montgomery's, but one of those two um, mentions that Luther's vitriol towards Jewish people was really framed by his disappointment after many of his personal attempts at evangelizing and providing an apologetic and his real belief that the Reformation was going to provide an opportunity for a, uh, a mass conversion yeah, of true. the Jewish yeah. people in his time. Mm-hmm. That's, that that's that's just didn't tradition. occur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark Edwards wrote a book called Luther's Last Battles that not only makes that point, but also gets into the actual or the, the, the historical events. And he makes the point that there's good reason to believe we don't have hard and fast evidence, but there's enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that uh, Luther had on at least one occasion or a couple occasions conversations with Jewish rabbis or scholars. And he believed early on that his his understanding of the New Testament, this sort of Christological understanding, this this notion or this understanding that the New, the Old Testament pointed to Jesus clearly and distinctly, he was so convinced of that he just did not understand why the Jews didn't uh, that didn't find that a reasonable argument, and you can trace the his writings on the Jews, uh, and if you're looking at the if you're put, get, not getting distracted by all the vitriol, but you're looking at the arguments he puts forward, it's, it gets increasingly more and more sophisticated. Uh, the earliest ones are just simple. I shouldn't say simple, but they're they're looking at Old Testament messianic prophecies. And showing how they're fulfilled in Christ. But then he starts adding layers to his apologetic, uh, making historical points. You know, that not only is this a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but look at all the historical evidence that backs it up even further. So it he doesn't Luther doesn't do anything, and nor should we expect him to lay out a treatise on apologetic methodology. It's not a question in his own day and age. But you could argue that his apologetic methodology to the Jews was to take what common ground the Jews and Christians had, that is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, and the from that as a base, he argues inductively from passages in the, the Old Testament and historical facts to the, the truthfulness of Jesus being the Christ, the, the promised Messiah. Um, so there's an inductive argument there. There's an evidential, if you will, a factual uh, argument, even though it's very much wrapped up in interpretation of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular. Um, 
So I, there is no, interestingly, there is no, like you said in the first half of the episode, there is no attempt to prove the truth of Christianity just by showing its internal coherence. Right. Uh, Luther is very, very much aware that the New Testament carries no weight for a Jew, and so he doesn't use it at all to, to argue for the, for the gospel. He's what, fulfilled prophecy of the Messiah? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the gist of it. So it's inductive. At, mm-hmm. it, at its core, and uh, respective to the times. Right. Using texts that they assume as uh, true and voracious, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. then using those and what they say about the coming Messiah to the accounts of the Messiah as we know them from recorded history. Absolutely. And at, in all of Luther's writings on the Jews, it, as you get towards the later period, it's become you become increasingly aware. He makes several comments to... Uh, mentioning that he's tried to get his hands and it has in fact gotten his hands on as much Jewish material that he can get his hands on. He's done, he's doing his homework. Yeah. Uh, these it, guys read like we wouldn't believe. Yeah. And he, he's quoting Jewish sources, not just the old Testament in some of these works. So um, it's think Paul at Mars Hill, where he quotes those stoic poets. Uh, Luther knows full well you can't just go and, and quote New Testament passages and expect uh, all of a sudden a Jew to kind of wake up and, and say, wow, and, thank yeah. you. Yeah. He's, he, he takes the, the defense of the gospel, the attempt to persuade Jews of the truthfulness of Christianity very seriously, so much so that he spends time, probably a great bit of time, uh, reading their own material to understand the sort of the Jewish worldview, why it is they do not accept the gospel. So again, he's sort of, um, much like in his theology, and I'm not using this as a pejorative, he's sort of opportunistic in this approach too. He'll he'll use whatever is available yeah. to him. I don't think, I don't know if Luther would often, would, would pass muster in some Lutheran circles. Right. Luther is, I mean, he's bound to the biblical text, to be sure. But where that biblical text provides opportunities to either go after a position mm-hmm. or to provide um, inductive evidence, he'll do. He'll use it. Yeah, he's he's very practical, maybe pragmatic, and mm-hmm. not in a modern sense of the terms. But uh, when it comes to addressing things, he's going to use whatever he can. The further he gets away from a Christian audience, he's going to use whatever he can that might persuade uh, that audience uh, that they're wrong and he's right. Right. <laughs> put it in, put it in black and white terms. Right. Uh, his writings on the, I don't know if you wanted to get there right now, but his writings on the Turks and Islam are even more interestingly apologetic, I think. Because uh, he st- eventually will start in his last work on Islam, or one of the last works, he actually uses the Quran to make a case for uh, the the deity of Christ and, and the doctrine of the Trinity. That's interesting. So would, would you say that... Um the greatest apologetic challenge of the 16th century was uh, Islam? Yeah. Uh, so in the, the broad history of apologetics, after the, early, the period of the early church, you know, after the conversion of Constantine and, and throughout all of the medieval history, the Jews were the near apologetic challenge, you know, but they're relatively small in number. The largest... And dispersed, right? Yeah, very much dispersed, especially as you get into the the twelfth and, and, and later, centuries. and a minority, if not a sort of, yeah. um, and they, they segregated minority. They, they very much segregated themselves, um, and but for a good reason. They were oftentimes persecuted. 
especially after the you know the first crusade breaks out as the crusaders march across Europe they find these Jews they've never they didn't think Jews existed in mm -hmm. Christian Europe and so they start persecuting them though there were popes and things who came to their defense but uh, Richard Southern who wrote a great book called Western Views of Islam probably one of the seminal books on this uh, in the Middle Ages argues right in the first or second page of the book that the greatest and most far-reaching challenge for medieval that includes late medieval Christians, that's Luther included, is the just the sheer existence of Islam. Because Islamic civilization in the Middle Ages is, is strong, vibrant. Uh, it kind of acts like a mirror to Christian civilization. Christians oftentimes, as you know, some of them went on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Uh, some of them were there uh, in fighting in crusades. They hear all sorts of reports about Islamic civilization being, in some periods, very sophisticated, materially speaking, technologically. And Christians in Europe are wondering, what gives? You know, why is it that Islamic civilization is successful and we're, you know, we're plagued with the bubonic or the right. Black Death? Yeah. Uh, and there, a theodicy type of question emerges. Why does it seem that God is favoring them and not us? Right. So it's a it's a big issue. Uh, a lot of stuff has been written on it, but not on a popular level. It's starting to come out. But um, when you get into Luther's day and age, a new stage kind of emerges where you get Islamic civilization renewing its push to expand Islamic civilization into Europe. And in fact, the uh, Ottoman Turks from their base in Istanbul in Luther's day and age, in Luther's life, by 1529, they're pushing, they've pushed all the way through Hungary and are banging on the gates of Vienna right next door, as Luther put it in one work, at our very doorstep. Right. Um, so it becomes the great uh, fear in the 16th century. It's a great distraction too. Um, I mean, the Pope and the Emperor are constantly distracted by the Turks such that they kind of Leave the Reformation alone yeah, for a while. Yeah, at some in some periods. Yeah. So, uh, at least in the early periods of the Reformation. Yeah, and and Luther's works. He says uh, after it around the time of Vienna, he says there's a there's going to be a time. There probably will be a time in the near future where we're all going to be subsumed under the Turkish Empire. In his second uh, introduction to the Book of Daniel, uh, he says if if the if things continue the way they are the whole world is going to go Mohammedan, which is a 16th century way of saying Muslim. So this is a big challenge. Not a whole lot of historians have dealt with it uh, until very recently, but it's the challenge of the day. Probably a third, this is kind of a rough estimate, of the literature that's produced from 1453 when the printing press is first invented to Luther's day and age, a third of that literature was dedicated to the, the threat and challenge that the Ottoman Turks posed to Christian Europe. So Luther writes a little piece on um, what the Christians should do if they find themselves living in a Mohammedan land, right? Yeah, and writes what, what's a number his, of pieces, yeah. And what's his advice on that? I'm gonna, there's three things um, that, that Luther suggests. Christians who have, who might, because they're soldiers or they're just living in the frontiers, um, should have in mind for the future if they would happen to be taken captive by the Turks or now their land might, is might, yeah, yeah might find themselves under Turkish rule first is in a work he calls um, an army sermon or a muster sermon against the Turk he says to those Christians if you're all of a sudden find yourself under the Mohammedan Empire consider that what that's what God has for you now that's your new station in life and in there he it's a remarkable work it's not not too long, not too short, but to, to make it real simple, he says to Christians there, you've got great opportunities living underneath the Turk. 
great opportunities to serve your new master uh, and to kind of shame Muslims by being a good, dutiful servant. We have a, a late 16th century source from a German Lutheran pastor who traveled, traveled to Istanbul who said that the, the Ottoman Turks loved their German Protestant captives, their Lutheran captains in particular, because they're good, dutiful servants. Uh, Luther instructed them, if you're there, serve them well. They're your neighbor yeah. now. An argument for and, vocation. Yeah. Uh, Luther then says, if you're there, also, also though, if you're there, you will have opportunities uh, to speak and to defend the gospel amongst the Muslim Turks. And he cautions, and he says, do this cautiously, and so on and so forth. But, uh, and to that end, what Luther does is starts developing a repertoire of, of um, apologetics towards the Turks. The early one from late 1529, early 1530 in the muster sermon is relatively basic. Uh, but in that, uh, his basic point is that if there is a sure defense of Christianity vis-a-vis -vis Islam, it's based on the person work of Jesus as a real historical person who really did die and who really did rise yeah, from the great. dead. Uh, he doesn't use the term verifying, but it's sure. kind of the gist of it. He says he verifies his ministry uh, by, by, he verified it by rising from the dead. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Now what's really incredible is after that, Luther throughout the, his, the later part of his life said, I wish I could get more material on Islam, primary source material, so I could speak a little more concretely about it because all he had were sort of quotations from the Quran at that point. So finally, 1540s, he gets a copy of the Quran, quickly says, we got to get this thing published so that Christians can read, what, uh, read about Islam on the primary source level. Because everything Luther said that's been written by Christians on Islam is filled with hyperbole. Oh, wow. So he was interestingly wanted to have the accurate information on Islam. He wasn't content with like polemical... Uh, material. He wasn't content with... Uh, Inaccuracies. You know, yeah. So he, he throws his weight behind a publication of the Quran and writes a preface to the Quran. Um, and what's fascinating just in the history of this, this, this uh, publication of the Quran is it's the first time the Quran is published um, successfully in Europe, actually published from a public, uh, printing press ever, there's a preface written by Luther in it, and Melanchthon will write some prefaces to it as well for later editions. And it's not just the Quran. It's a bunch of other Islamic writings, some what we call hadith, um, some histories of Islam, and some apologetic stuff. And effectively, the book is huge. You know, it's probably like eight, ten inches thick. Um, and it's, one scholar has called it the first encyclopedia of Islam. Wow. Uh, and you could argue, I've argued in my, my dissertation, that it was primarily Luther's support of this that got that thing published. I'm sure. And the letter he wrote to encourage the publication of it, he says that we need this published now here because the Muslim Turks are coming and Christians need to prepare themselves to become lion hearts in the defense of the gospel against Islam. Do you recall so, which print house uh, published it? In Basel. Uh, uh, Johannes Operinus was the, the publisher. Um, Theodore Bibliander was the Scott, the editor. Uh, that was uh, Zwingli's, one of Zwingli's yeah. successors. So he does that. And then the year following, 1543, he translates out of Latin into German a work called A Refutation of the Quran. So just for historical perspective for our listeners, this is three years prior to his death. Mm -hmm. right? So this is what's yeah. on his mind in his five yeah. years. Oh, yeah. He's he's convinced, if you read the like the table talk, the sort of the... The, you know, when he's hanging around with his students at the table and they're recording everything he says, like some of Dr. Rosenblatt's students have done, 
Um, and we've got multiple volumes of this stuff. The, the Turks are a common reference in his conversation. He's, everybody's worried about the Turks coming in because at that time, the Turks had just struck up an alliance with France too. So it looked like They're Germany is sides. surrounded. Yeah. Um, so anyway, 1543, he translates and, and adds to a work called A Refutation of the Quran, which comes from a Dominican uh, a Thomist scholar in the, the, you know, the late 13th, early 14th century. And it's a massive work. It's the most popular and the most uh, learned apologetic and polemic against uh, Islam. It's basically, there are two halves. The first half is much larger than the second, but it's a, an attack on the legitimacy of Islam making the point that the, the Islam based on the Quran just cannot be true because the Quran is just filled with so many contradictions internally and contradictions with history and so on and so forth. Then the second part of it, uh, Luther makes the point and adds in all sorts of his own little particular arguments, says that now that we've destroyed the Quran, the, the basis of, of Islam, how do we defend truth Christianity in, an, in a Muslim, or how could a Christian defend the truthfulness of Christianity in a Muslim, before a Muslim audience? And he says, they don't accept the New or the Old Testament. They believe it's been corrupted. So what do we have? We have the Quran. And he argues there are places in the Quran, passages in the Quran that could be used as at least conversation starters, we might call them today, uh, to, for example, one passage in the Quran refers to Jesus as the Kalimatullah, the, the word of Allah, the word of God. Uh, there's another place that refer to uh, God. Allusions to John 1 there. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the way Christian apologists from John of Damascus in the early days through Luther have, that's the way they've approached Islam. Uh, there's a place in the Quran that refers to God, refers to the word of God, and refers to the spirit of God. And, and Luther believed that you could use these to at least argue before a Muslim that it is not entirely, um, you, you can't just rule out an incarnation or the Trinity uh, because your Muslim scholars have told you to. The Quran itself suggests that the, these are possible understandings of, of God and, and, and Jesus. So now it's not the most sophisticated, it's not an apologetic that meets today's standards to be sure, but in six, the 16th century, it's sort of the, the cutting edge of apologetics, if you will. Right. And he, the curious thing with this little book is he writes it in a, he purposely published it. So it was like a, um, I forget the, it's, it's a real small book. There's a technical term for it. Um, that refers to how many times they fold oh, the pages. Oh, uh, qu uh, quarto? Yeah, I think it's Octavo. one step. Yeah, that's Octavo, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a small little booklet, and he did this on purpose so that people who were on the front lines in the battles with the Turks could bring this this apologetic work in that, their pocket. pocket work. Yeah. 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 Bring it with them so if they get caught, if they're made taken captive or they're sitting in their, I mean, they're not in trenches, but they're sitting behind walls or something, uh, and there's not there's not a whole lot going on, they could read it and they that's could great. prepare so, for those people who say that Luther was not interested in apologetics, even inductive apologetics, they really need to go and read Luther's apologetic work. Read more not, thoroughly. Yeah, not just go to the, uh, the index or an electronic search engine to see what Luther sure. might say about it in one particular work, but uh, it's very clear uh, that he believes it's sort of a task for the church. In fact, uh, there's a scholar... of fairly famous scholar at Fort Wayne Seminary, the seminary in Fort Wayne, Concordia Theological Seminary, named David Scare, who wrote a nice little article in the festive for Charles Mansky, the founding president of Concordia University, Irvine. 
And the title is Apologetics, A Necessary and Biblical Task. Luther is a biblical theologian. He cannot get around the exhortation, 1 Peter 3.15, that all Christians are to to always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within them. Right. That's great. So Adam, where could people go if they wanted more on this specific subject of Lutheran apologetics? <sighs> Good it's kind of rough, isn't well, it? Well, give it uh, a little while, but um, this I'm not sure when this episode's going to air. I know we talked about it just 15 minutes ago, but I don't remember. <laughs> Late um, January. Okay, so I'm going to be giving a presentation on this at, at Fort Wayne, uh, ctsfw.edu. Uh, puts those presentations live, or there's live streaming, I think, and we'll, they will archive it, and then eventually it'll be, if it's good enough, it'll be published in their journal. So there's that. Um, there's a great book called Luther's Last Battles by Mark U. Edwards. Um, I say U. Edwards because there's a Mark J. Edwards, but Mark U. Edwards used to be out of Harvard. I think he's now deceased. Um, that's not a a book on Luther's apologetics, but gets into the history of all this. Um, my master's thesis, if we maybe post pieces of it yeah. on, on the blog. We should. I'm not a blogger, but... Uh, but you could edit pieces of your master's yeah, thesis. Yeah, yeah. Maybe for a yeah, thousand, that would be a thousand dollars a post, up. I could probably do that for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> or, or 50. <laughs> or 50, yeah. <laughs> How about a sandwich? Or frog morton. That'd, that'd be a dollar a word. <laughs> or a beer. You got beer in your fridge here. I got beer. So, I'm going to do um, beer. Um, I don't know. There's there is stuff out there, but uh, I, I I hesitate to say this, but I think a lot of it's not not that good. All right. Well, we'll wait for you to to uh, guide us through this. Sounds like the topic of your next book, there, Adam. <laughs> Did you see the, the look of exhaustion that just <laughs> came over, Adam? All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, Caleb, any closing remarks? No. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Thinking Fellows. We have a wonderful website full of show notes for you, Thinking Fellows. Dot com. Go visit there. We also have a new archive page up on the website. So if you missed an episode, if you want to catch up with some episodes or you want to re-listen to something and you're having a hard time finding it, everything there is ordered by the date that it was published and has uh, the name and the topic that it's a part of on there. So it's really easy to navigate. So you can go check that out. I'll have a direct link to the archive in the show notes. All right. All right. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>